0: Evening, everyone. Thank you, guys, for leading us. Uh, this is, as Stephen has said, it's our third venture into the rather unique uh, Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And we have arrived at chapter three, which is, or at least the first eight verses are immediately recognizable. Uh, but as we get back into this, I, I want to ask you some time related questions. Uh, do you ever wish you had more time? Can time actually fly? How do you kill time? What is a time waster? Now, don't name anybody, okay. Is, is time money? If you could turn back time, quote share, if you could turn back time, where would you go and what would you do? What is hammer time? <laughs> only some will get that. If only time will tell, what does time say? How do you make, how do you invest, how do you spend time? What exactly is quality time? How do you know if you're living on borrowed time? What does a wheel of a time look like? Does time heal? and I could go on. But the issue in the topic of time is just so real, it's so relevant, it's so fascinating and yet so frustrating, and therefore any reflection or commentary on life and its purpose and its meaning is surely going to consider and investigate time. And so it's no big surprise to find there's a substantial portion and section of Ecclesiastes devoted to this very issue. And in chapter three, as many of you know, we come to we're confronted with one of the most famous, most insightful, and most moving reflections on time of all time, a kind of go-to portion of Scripture that is read on so many occasions, including lots of funerals. Now, rather than, and we did this a number of years ago, but rather than read those familiar words, we're going to listen to them, or a version of them, I've no doubt some of you know exactly what I'm gonna play. It's a song by The Birds from 1965, before I was born, uh, called Turn, Turn, Turn. The lyrics, as many of you know, are lifted directly from the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3. So hopefully this should work. So let's have a listen and a watch. (laughs) According to the uh, teacher, uh, there is a time for everything. There's, for everything, there is a season. And some of you will know that if you count up the number of seasons in those first eight verses, there are 28. Seasons that come and seasons that go ebb and flow in and out of our lives. Seasons that are painful, like weeping and mourning and war and other seasons that are just so enjoyable, like laughing and dancing and peace. And you can look at all this and listen to it all and think, life is just in this constant state of change, in flux. You're up one minute, down the next. Life's complex, it's unpredictable. Or you can look at it and see and celebrate the rich variety of life's adventures, the twists and the turns, the highs and the lows. And you can see and you can appreciate that there is an appropriate time for all of life's experiences both the pleasant and the good and the unpleasant and the painful for everything there is a season now most of us uh, gravitate towards or prepare a particular season of the year I suppose for many people it's like summer or maybe spring maybe some who enjoy one of the others and you kind of wish I wish it was like this all the time and yet it's not like this all the time We can't stay in one particular season. We need the changing seasons because of what they bring. Although I realize that when you're going through a difficult season of life, when you're going through a painful time, you're left with all kinds of questions like, like, why now? Why is this happening to me at this time? Whereas with hindsight, as you look back, you, you, you sometimes sense, well, there was a purpose in that. You value the experiences as you look back. Maybe you even might get to a point of thinking or being grateful for that difficult time in your life. Uh, Kierkegaard, the kind of Danish theologian and philosopher, said that life has to be lived forwards, but the trouble is we can only understand it backwards. It's true. And we look, we look back over different seasons and times in our lives, and it's only then that we see the bigger and the greater picture But but it's how the opening verse in Ecclesiastes 3 ends that is so crucial, because during the the first two weeks of this series, we've come across a phrase that we've highlighted. It's a three-word term that appears so many times in Ecclesiastes, I think it's 29 times in total. And that phrase that we've been highlighting so far has been under the sun, which as we've been saying means a couple of things. At its very simplest and basic level, it means just life as it is, life on planet Earth, but at a much deeper and more important level, what this term primarily means or refers to is life from a purely human perspective. This is a reference to life without God, life apart from God, life with no reference to God. But here in verse 1, at the end of it, is not that particular phrase, it's a slightly different phrase. And so what it says is, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter, not under the sun but under heaven. And that's, that's a different outlook. That's a different point of view. That is actually to live life within a framework that incorporates the existence of God, to realize actually there is a God. This is a recognition that there is a spiritual there is an eternal dimension to life and so as the teacher declares there are 28 seasons there is a time for every activity under heaven what he is saying here when he says under heaven is that we do this time before God and we need to do it before God as opposed to separate from God God is present under heaven God sees, God knows the times we're in. He knows the times that you and I are going through. He knows the season we're in. He wants to be involved. He wants to be included. And that's what this whole idea of, there's a time for everything under heaven with God present. If the teacher had said, there's a time for every activity under the sun, that would have been at one level quite tragic because it would have removed God, discounted God, neglected God from all of the seasons alike. But thankfully, he doesn't say that. And so, there is a time to mourn at a funeral. And there is a time to dance at a wedding. And on and on you could go. That is the God-ordained reality of life in a broken world. There are the ups and the downs. There are the highs and the lows, the twists and the turns. And the fact is, we all know that. Because we see it all around us every single day. But we need to see it with a god perspective. And so so one of the key questions that flows out of this is, well, then how should we live in all of these various seasons of life and all of these different times? Again, let me share a quote I've used before. Years ago, I remember reading a book by Ian Stackhouse called The Day is Yours. Don't know if anybody has read it. It's about the importance of rest and, and about the need to pursue healthy rhythms in your life. But in that book, he offers this particular thought on time. He says, the art of living is to discern the time and then to embrace it wholeheartedly. The art of living is to discern the time and to embrace it wholeheartedly. Now, that's easier said than done. But I would suggest that the only way you can embrace time wholeheartedly is with God. It's by acknowledging his presence. It's by inviting his involvement. And so there is a season for every activity, every activity with God. And so what time is it for you at the moment? What season are you going through right now? Are you embracing the time wholeheartedly? Or are you resisting it? Are you looking to God through it? Or are you denying his presence in it? Are you trusting God despite the time you're in? Or are you ignoring God because of the time you're in? If we were writing the script for our lives or for the lives of many people that we know and love, we'd probably write them very differently. We'd write out all of the tough times the winter seasons and yet God knows and God has determined that there's a time for everything for the harsh and the happy and to add weight to this kind of idea and argument the teacher then offers one of the most optimistic and truthful statements in the whole of Ecclesiastes he writes in verse 11 after he said there is all these seasons this time for everything he says God has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything beautiful in its time. And that offers hope, because I I may not see the beauty of this time or this season. I might wish I could turn back time or I could hit fast forward, but God is in this. God is working out His purposes in this season, at this time. And because of that, it is indeed a beautiful thing. And the teacher goes on, and I know we're now well into the rest of Ecclesiastes 3. Most people do stop at verse 8, which is a grave mistake. You shouldn't do it. You should never stop at verse 8 if you're going to read Ecclesiastes 3. But in the second half of verse 11, he he then declares something regarding time that he knew and discovered to be true, and this is something that's been recognized for centuries ever since. It's a well-known idea that God has placed, or God has put, eternity in the man's heart. It's one of the most profound statements in Scripture. The teacher kind of moves from the nitty-gritty subject of specific time to this vast issue of eternity, and there's at least a couple of dimensions to this. This is a time-related subject. There's a time-related aspect to eternity. It's infinite time. It's time everlasting. It's time without end, but the second aspect to this is the sense we have as human beings that hey, there's gotta be more to life than this time. There's gotta be more than the temporal. There's gotta be more life than the physical, tangible, time-bound world that we find ourselves in. And so as human beings, we carry this sneaking suspicion that's wired into us. There's gotta be more. And that sense is God-given. The creator of life has placed into the hearts of man an appetite for the eternal. But what is surprising, or maybe it's, it's not, is that so many people are trying to satisfy that appetite with anything and everything other than and apart from the God who created it and who instilled it into every human heart. Uh, Blaise Pascal, I uh, once said, I quoted him last week as well. There is a new, again, this is a familiar <coughs> quote. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God. You see, without God, we are left with a void. God has placed eternity in our hearts, but without God, we have this sense of internal unease. And Augustine, addressing God, said this, again, well-known. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so as verse nine, if you go back to verse nine, as it says life will be a burden and time will not make any sense unless, unless that internal ache is satisfied by the God who put it there. It's not gonna make any sense the seasons of life, time. Unless, you satisfy that internal ache with God who put it there. Eternity has been placed in our hearts, and it's essential that we address that. But there's a mystery in this, because look at the end of verse 11 with me. It's on the screen. Yet, the writer says, or the teacher says, they, people, human, man, cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. Yeah, we can know and we can discover certain things as the teacher did and as the teacher is doing, but we cannot know all the answers to the conundrums and enigmas of life, we, we do see, as the New Testament, we do see a mirror through, or in a mirror darkly, dimly, but one day, or through a glass, darkly dimly, but one day in eternity, we will see perfectly clear. So the teacher says that, that you cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning of time to the end. And then he quickly returns to life in the here and now, and he says that in light of my reflection to date, there's nothing better, there's nothing more to it or better for it than this. Verse 12, as he thinks about God placing eternity in our hearts and us not being able to fathom what God has done from the beginning of time to now, he says there's nothing more to do or better to do than to be happy and to do good. And in some ways, who wouldn't argue with that? It's great advice. It's a brilliant mindset to adopt. And as he, as he continues writing in this vein, he then identifies three potential sources of satisfaction in verse 13, kind of going back to last week. He says three, three sources of satisfaction being happy and doing good, food, drink, and work. Food, drink, and work. And if you're honest, and if we're honest, if we can be content with those and in those, if we can be, then even people with restless hearts can get by for a certain amount of time. In fact, I'll guarantee you that most of us know people who eat well, who drink well, who work well, who enjoy their jobs and therefore have a level of satisfaction. It's just wired in this. But the next little phrase, although it's actually a massive phrase, is critical. Because at the end of verse 13, what does it say? It says, this is the gift of God, this is God's gift to man. The ability to enjoy life is a gift from God. And not everybody appreciates that, not everybody sees that, but it is true nonetheless. It's a gift from God. This life is short, the teacher knows that. And so he says, we are, as we reflect forward, he referred to this, that generations come and go, it's, we're a mist that appears for a little while then, we're gone, as it says in the New Testament. And so he said, there's a time to be born, but then there's a time for us to die. But in the interval between the delivery suite and the graveyard, what should we do? What should we do in the meantime? Well, in very simple uh, sense, the teacher would say, just enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. Eat, drink, and work. And the fact that you can find satisfaction in those is a gift of God. The problem, as we said last week, and as the teacher discovered in chapter two, is that if you try to find satisfaction and pleasure in those gifts alone, if they become an end in themselves, that's where the danger is. If you neglect or ignore or dismiss the giver of those gifts and recognize that, that this is a gift of God, then you will never find what you're looking for. And that ache for eternity will never go away. And so for many people today, they continue to seek after those created things rather than the, created, the creator. And so verse 14 continues, and what he says is, I perceive that what God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. And so what he's saying is there's, there's a permanence about God. There's nothing temporal about God. There's an enduring quality about God And all that God does, there's a completeness. And therefore, as you live through the various times and seasons of your life, as you receive these good gifts from God as gifts, you should then learn to revere God. You should stand in awe of Him. You should learn to fear Him and to worship Him. The broader Old Testament wisdom literature of which Ecclesiastes is a part tells us that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and so if you want to get and you want to be wise in life then you need to know what it means to fear God not to be afraid of him not to live in abject terror of God instead to develop such an appreciation of God that you give him proper respect you give him proper honor and glory that you stand in awe of him and respond appropriately to him in worship and obedience The alternative position and the one that most people would seem to adopt today is to live life under the sun without any reference or recognition of God and that life is a gift from God and that all good things come from God. And so what people do is just dismiss his presence, dismiss his involvement in every season of life, in every time that there is and to believe this life is only temporary. It is not eternal. And although many today pursue and sometimes find satisfaction to a certain level, they generally, when you really ask, them, generally so many people remain restless, chasing after the next, going after, striving after the next thing. God has created us to revere him, says the teacher. And until we do that, that vacuum inside us, that void, it's going to remain, it's going to ache and in verse 15, the teacher proceeds to reflect on time and he writes, whatever has already been and what will be has been before. History, he says, it just keeps repeating itself. It just keeps repeating itself. And there are echoes here of verse nine of chapter one where he says there, what has been will be again. And what has been will be done again. Because he says, there's nothing new under the sun. And it sounds like, and when you read that, it sounds like we're just caught in this endless cycle from which there's no escape. But here in chapter three, the teacher adds a new thought as he talks about time like this. He says at the end of verse 15, and God will call the past to account. Time might seem that it's gone round in circles, that it's so complex, that it's so unpredictable. History might be repeating itself. But what he's saying is no, It's all heading in a particular direction because one day, someday, at a given point in time, God will call time Then God will call the past to account at that time and at that time all of us are then going to have to give an account of how we used our time. And so he then moves on from this to to talk then about the closely linked issue of justice. Because if you look at verse 16, immediately after 15, he he observes how in the place of justice, he's talking about how you have to give an account of time. He talks about in the place of justice, he says, there is not just there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, in the place of doing right, there is also wickedness. And again, we see this all around us. We know it all too well. There should be justice, but there's not. Something's wrong. Post office scandal. Or sentencing that doesn't equate to the wickedness of the crime. Where there should be justice. There's not justice, there's wickedness. But the teacher realizes, although there is present injustice, it is not the end of the story because at some point in time, or as elsewhere in scripture teaches us at the appointed time, God is going to bring everything into the light. He is going to call the past to account. He is going to, as it goes on in verse 17, he is going to judge, because as he then says, there is a time for every activity, including bringing everything to account. For the time being, Justice and wickedness will more, injustice and wickedness will more often than not have their day. And that does bother us. And as we watch their news screens and as we watch those dramatization of the things that have happened, it gets under our skin. But the injustice and the wickedness is time limited because ultimate justice, the teacher says, will prevail. God will call the past to account. And in the final little section of this great chapter, the teacher then returns to what you could say is a pet subject of his, just regarding time and the season. And the subject that he's been talking about, as I say, right from the very beginning, and it is this issue of the the inevitability and reality of his death. And so in verse 19, look at this, he, he recognizes that animals die and humans die. And in his mind at this point, he seems to indicate, he seems to indicate that either they all return to dust. That's what it says in here. Animals and humans alike just return to dust. But then in his next breath, he asks this provocative leading question where he says this Who knows if the spirit of a man rises upward? It's fascinating. You see, either you can view death as the end of the line, or you view death as a platform to another destination. And So from one perspective, its all idea, just like the animal ever, we just go back to dust. From one perspective, life can seem in our time of life, and the seasons of life can seem pretty pointless and meaningless, whereas from another, from an eternal perspective. Death is not the end. There is an upward raise, an upward way raised to a brand new world and into an existence in the presence of God forever, for all, eternity,' where time without. And so as the teacher begins to gather up his thoughts, it would seem at the end, in verse 22, he finishes with a teasing question. He asks this, for who can bring a person to see what will happen after them? For who can bring a person to see what will happen? And he leaves that question hanging for now. But as the rest of Scripture makes clear, it's only God can bring a person to see what is going to happen after them. Only God can help a person to understand and prepare properly for what does lie beyond life. And so just as the guys come back and we turn to worship again, let me suggest that as we reflect on time and the seasons of life, that now, now is probably a good time. Now is probably the right time to consider carefully what is it that God has placed in our hearts? To consider carefully the time we do have and how we discern the time and how we embrace the time wholeheartedly under heaven with God, with God present, with God involved. And also now is the right time to consider, well, what does lie beyond time as I know it? After death, can a person see what will happen after them? Well, only God
1: can enable us to see that in his time. Let's worship.